This is Recruiting Daily's Recruiting Live podcast, where we look at the strategies behind the world's best talent acquisition teams. We talk recruiting, sourcing, and talent acquisition. Each week, we take one overcomplicated topic and break it down so that your three-year-old can understand it. Make sense? Are you ready to take your game to the next level? You're at the right spot. You're now entering the mind of a hustler. Here's your host, William Tincup. Ladies and gentlemen, this is William Tincup, and you're listening to the Recruiting Daily Podcast. We have a wonderful guest on today, and we're going to go into a world that we don't often talk about on Recruiting Daily or in general in recruiting, and that is legal recruiting, uh, the, the the recruitment of lawyers and attorneys, etc. So we got Joe McRae on the phone, and we're going to talk a little bit about his firm as well. But Joe, first of all, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing well, thank you, William. The sun is shining in California and the dogs are behaving themselves, so it's all good so far. <laughs> well, I've got two uh, brother and sister uh, uh, pit bulls, so uh, if, if at any point anything moves, uh, you'll, you'll hear them, trust me. Um, so tell, tell me a little bit about, okay, so first of all, tell me a little bit about the firm. What do you specialize in and what are you known for? Sure. Um, so our firm is... It's rather unimaginatively called McRae. Um, and we specialize really in only one tier of the legal market these days, although over the last 30 years I've handled most aspects of legal recruiting. Happy to chat about that separately. But right now we focus on partner moves, team moves, law firm office openings, uh, law firm combinations. And that's the sector we play in. And we have people in the Bay Area D.C., New York, and London. So I was about to ask if you were global, and that, that answered that question. Now, for folks that have never uh, recruited a lawyer, and especially someone that's going to work attorney side, t- take us into how that, how do you how do you source, like what's your, when you, I mean, obviously you've got a great network, and you know, after doing it for, for a while, uh, you, you know a lot of folks, so you know where to look, but how do you how do you source a heart? Because uh, because when someone's looking for you know we want people that are on partnership track etc. How do you go yeah. about that? Well, so <clears throat> the t- the tier that we're in is actually I would say perhaps surprisingly old fashioned in the sense that uh, a lot of recruitment, as I'm sure you know from your um, perspectives across the industry, has been transformed by the internet and LinkedIn generally. Um, those tools are useful for us in identifying who our clients will want to see. Um, But really, we rely on old-fashioned phone calls and outreach to get a chance to talk to somebody live um, and present an opportunity and or explain why, if they're thinking of moving, they should be using one of our people as their trusted career advisor. So it's still very much, as one of my partners says, ear to ear. Yeah, it's, and 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 it's it's a, it's reminiscent of uh, how executive search is still done today, more or less. Okay, well, I'll learn from you in that regard because the yeah. amount I know about that sector is, it, is limited. It's 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 high touch. It's uh it's 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 a lot of uh, you you mentioned you know it's 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 counseling. 
it's giving people really great counsel on, you know, you're not necessarily, it's not transactional as much. So uh, it seems because you're working with a higher level individual, there's probably some higher salaries involved. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's not as transactional. Uh, executive search, even today, is still, you know, very much talking, meeting, making sure that they're making, you're making, everybody's making the right decision and it's fit. You know, you're really, really right. making sure that the fit has gotten right. Um, are, you, are you pulling folks... Um, and then this would all be client dependent, I would assume, but are you pulling folks from other firms? Are you pulling them uh, from, you know, GC positions into a firm or, you know, are you, are you even going down into the law schools and pulling from, from law schools and, and places like that? Um, so the vast majority of the work we do is, is pulling people from firms mm -hmm. where they have already demonstrated some success and right. uh, visibility in, in their specialization. That from time to time, general counsel move back into law firms, but it's a relatively small subset of GCs right. who either have the uh, legal specialization or the client generation skills and desire to go out and, and build a practice back in a law firm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because once they've made the general counsel move at whatever point, they've essentially made the decision to be a generalist. Uh, and so it's it's probably hard unless, unless you know, they've kept up with their specialization. You're still dealing, I'm assuming, and you tell me, you, you know, you're the boss here. Um, there's still kind of a war for talent for the folks that you're dealing with, I'm assuming. Well, when you say still a war for talent, I would frame <laughs> it slightly differently, which is that um, the war for talent um, has accelerated yeah. in the last 10 years and more particularly in the last five uh, in a way that has transformed the market for top legal talent, um, I think, for all time. Is, is that been, and Joe, first of all, I, I, I'm fascinated by this. Is, this. is this based on the specialization, people that are just really great at bio, biotech, or is it people that, are, that have the ability to generate their own business or a combination of both? Like what's made, what's made that even tighter through the last five years? Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, if you sort of start at 40,000 feet and work down, um, the overall market for elite legal services in the AMLAW 100 or AMLAW 200 firms, so the top 100 or top 200 firms in the US, you know, has increased slowly, if at all, in recent years. And so firms, if they're looking to grow, um, have to essentially attract top talent and create momentum by either building new businesses themselves or hiring uh, talented partners who bring revenue streams that they didn't previously have. So that's kind of the first thing. And then the second is that the firms have either through choice or need or a combination altered the way they compensate partners so that you know, top partners um, perhaps 10 years ago were earning three to $4 million. Um, and they can now, those same partners can be making 10 to 12 and clearly that's at the very, very rarefied end of the market. But it has a knock-on effect all the way through, which is that you can have a partner who's making a million five at their current firm, who because their practice is growing strongly or they're a particular strategic fit with another firm, can command two five at that firm. And so you're seeing these big differentials in how 
um, seemingly similar law firms uh, may value a particular partner and their practice at any given time. I love that. And, and just so I understand before I ask a different question, um, if, if you're, let's say you're, you're specialized or one of the things you're known for as a law firm is, is IP, um, yeah. adding a lawyer that's just great at software IP or SaaS IP, let's you know, make yeah. something real specific, adding a partner there would be adding another kind of a specialization within a specialization and, and making that practice even more attractive. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, so yes. So I can either give you another example or yeah, you can please do. Please do. No, please so do. I was going to say, so I mean, sitting in Silicon Valley, um, when people talk about um, the litigation market here, for example, um, they'll typically divide between tech and life sciences. So you, you will, for example, find a firm that's got an excellent tech team that really wants life sciences or vice versa um, to balance up and diversify their revenue streams in, in what they see as two of the hottest specializations in this market. And then in DC and New York and London, there would be different considerations. So what, okay. So is you just mentioned something that made me think of Wilson Cincinnati. I'm not sure why, but is there a, is there a sexiness to certain firms that you find with when you're talking to somebody potentially at a different firm and you want to, and you'd like for them to consider coming to this other firm is, is there still, or, or was there ever, I should actually phrase that differently. Uh, in my mind, there was, <laughs> but, but you're the expert. Uh, is there a sexiness to, to some of these folks when you're talking to them about, about certain firms? Um, I, I think I'll, I think this is answering your question, but if not, I'll try again. So certainly if you look at say Silicon Valley in the late nineties, going up to the, right. to the bust of 2000, there was a sense that, I mean, from an economic perspective, there was a sense that something here was changing the world. There were millionaires every hmm. day, IPOs of companies that no one understood. And it's definitely the case that Cooley, Wilson, mm -hmm. Fenwick, Gunderson, were law firms that were very much associated with having a kind of secret source or alchemy right, right. that enabled them to engage with and service those companies. And I think what you've seen in the, in the legal market in Northern California over the last 20 years is other firms coming in and trying to um, capture that business and, and really either establishing clients' minds that there is no secret source or alchemy or to the extent that there is replicated themselves. Love that. Love that. So um, what, when you're in your experience, again, this is over the course, I won't say how many years, because, and I love that they use the word alchemy in a sentence, which is, thank you for doing that. Um, <laughs> in your experience, why, why do partners stay and why do partners leave? Um, so I think, uh, and, and actually I'll sort of bring in the, the Brit and, and UK aspect to this, because I right. think it is, uh, there are some differences between the UK and the US. So, so the, um, the reason partners stay is typically a combination of actually like their partners. They do feel that there's a, a culture within their organization that works for them and that they earn enough money that um, their lifestyle works and that they have a, a work-life balance. And you know, 
They may get called frequently with other opportunities, but there's just no push factor. Um, and one of the interesting things, having spent considerable amounts of time both in the UK and the US now, it is that um, there is a, a disconnect where um, a higher proportion of partners uh, in the US will consider an opportunity where there is a material change in comp and, and really think carefully about it in a way that is still slightly different from a number of the more traditional English partners who, um, when offered a 2x increase in their comp by an American firm, will say, well, actually, thank you, but I'm kind of happy where I am. Right. Um, and it, it's often a head scratcher for our US clients that <laughs> the, the partners don't engage more readily um, given that cash differential. And obviously, that's a little bit of a generalization and a stereotype. Sure. Sure. And the London market is changing, but it's still there. Um, and then as to why partners do move, if you set aside the obvious points I've made about more money or, or because they're concerned about the culture, <clears throat> there's kind of a smorgasbord of points where it might be you know, the new firm has a specific need in venture capital or private equity where they can step in and take a leadership role. Uh, it might be that they're sitting in New York and they have a lot of business in London and the firm that's calling them has a much stronger London office. And quite often it's seemingly minor interpersonal friction, which right. the firm they're at sees as kind of low level noise. But actually the partner moving has got so frustrated, they feel yeah. they've been disrespected or not listened to. Um, and it causes them to to take a meeting or look outside, and then one thing leads to another. Isn't it amazing? I, I've we find that in, in the other parts of recruiting too. It's like little, you know, somebody didn't take you know my request seriously or a proposal seriously, and then that just spirals into this something that you know you can't get it. You can't get the the air back in the bottle. Um, I wanted to ask, cause you, you spurred on a kind of a thought of mine with, as it relates to UK attorneys and, and partners, do you feel like they're uh, more conservative just in nature? Or do you think that they're, they're more loyal? Like what drives, if someone offered, I mean, I know the answer for most Americans, but if someone offers two X on selling on comp, I'm pretty sure most Americans would say yes before even finding out the details. Yeah. <laughs> but but, um, do you, but with your UK counterparts, do you uh, do you find it's just they're just a little bit more conservative around change or more loyalty, or is there something else that I'm not thinking about? Well, so I th so I think. The short answer is yes, they're more conservative. But what, what we're observing is that there is absolutely a kind of generational and mm. attitudinal shift mm. going on. Because for the people who are partners um, in the middle and later stages of their career, they grew up and trained and, right. and did their first few years in the traditional um, British system. Um, where, where if you were in an elite English firm, the American firms were growing in presence in London, but they were different and perhaps scary. And were the, was the culture different? Would you have to work twice as hard? Was it a hire and fire mentality? Were they going to succeed? But if you fast forward to the world we're in today, the American law firms have a very strong and growing market position in London. Many of them have been there 20 or 30 years and have 100 to 300 lawyers 
and a distinct UK transatlantic culture. And the associates who are coming out of law school now and going into the law firms, first of all, see the marketplace through that lens. Secondly, they all have friends who are at the American firms. Um, and thirdly, they, they've grown up understanding that many partners or an increasing number of partners don't stay at one firm for their whole career. Right. So actually, they're much more open to thinking, well, um, of course, I should be managing my career and, and open to other opportunities because the chances are I will be a partner at more than one firm during during my X number of years in the profession. So That's, I think it's changing for a host of reasons. Yeah, that is such a such a change because you're right. People would come up; it was up or out. Once they stayed, uh, then they'd make partner and they you know essentially die there you know uh so that's fantastic and i i've got to ask uh, clearly i've got to ask about covid real quickly um how has that changed business for y'all in terms of people wanting to change uh, people wanting to you know uh request new partners etc how has how has covid impacted your business so um it's uh, obviously a question on, on everyone's minds at the moment. And when we, if you go back to the start of COVID, which obviously feels like an awfully long time ago now, in sort of March, um, we we did our budgets and planning on the assumption that our market would come to a screaming halt because there was just so much uncertainty that everyone would hunker down. Um, and in fact, we are have had our, our busiest year ever and are, are likely to be 40, 50% busier than we were last year overall. And there's a couple of factors at play there. One is, even though, let's say, half the market firms have shut down recruiting and are being conservative and just saying, look, we've got to focus on other things. The other half is saying, actually, we're really busy. This is going better than we thought. We want to be strategic in continuing to pick up talent and grow our business even during COVID. The second phenomenon is that because people can't get on planes and go across the country and see clients, there are actually firms opening offices, not just in Silicon Valley, but particularly here during COVID, the whole thing's being done on Zoom um, and done faster than normal because the partners who are doing the interviewing aren't spending an average of two or three hours a day traveling on airplanes in business dinners. And so you can just crash through a process much more quickly um, with everybody sitting at home. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, with the, the few minutes that we have left, we've got a, kind of a two-prong uh, question. And sure. uh, one, of course, you and I could talk for a couple of hours about this because I'm just fascinated with what you do. Um, a, how competitive is the the space in which you occupy? Because it's a specialized, obviously, it's a niche uh, that you've been in for, for a very long time. And then secondly, uh, I know that you've rebranded uh, recently. You know, why why did you do that? And how, how has that been received, et cetera? Sure. So, um, of course, because I've been in it a long time and actually love what I do, I find the, the sector endlessly fascinating. And one of the curious things about it is that it's still very, very regional. So there'll be excellent recruitment companies in London, excellent rec recruitment companies in New York, in Chicago, in Miami, but they tend to be small operations, um, two to six professionals just doing that market. 
And if you then look and say, well, how many companies are there that are multi-office or even international, it drops off dramatically. Um, and so our competition is both the best of breed people in each of the regions, and then the one or two other companies that are big and, and international. But if, if it obviously therefore depends whether we're pitching local excellence or the ability to simultaneously hire in New York and London as to who our competition is. Um, so that's a sort of high level answer on that. And then as to why we rebranded, it's really um, quite simple, which is that the first two letters of the name of our old company was, well, was M Legal. So it was ML. Uh, and the our, our main competitor for many, many years had the same two first letters. Um, and so uh, it was causing a large amount of confusion. Um, we also had a number of people join us from that company, which augmented the confusion. And so we decided to rebrand to one word. We looked at a number of different words, and I'm pleased to say that one of my partners, rather than I, suggested the word that we ended up with. Well, that's fantastic. And the experience, so reception, now that you're not, hopefully we'll have brand confusion with some of the, sure. with the other player. What's been the, the general reception from your employees, people that you work with, your, sure. your, your partners, and also your, your customers and prospects? Well, needless to say, I've got a lot of personal teasing about why did it take me so long to choose the name. Um, but setting that apart, um, people have said that they think it's a crisp and clear look and modern and simple. Um, and then um, I think we also have enough perspective on our business to recognize that actually there's a danger we become very obsessed with brand and how does it look and how does it feel. But for most of our clients and candidates, they deal with right. us because they're impressed with the person they're dealing with. Right. Actually, the name of the organization is secondary to, are you their trusted counsel? Are you the person getting the job done? I love that. Um, so, yeah. So with that, if you'll excuse me, I'd, I'd better hop and I know you've got to, to run. I appreciate, Joe, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your school and the audience. Thank you so much for, for joining us. And thanks for everyone listening to the Recruiting Daily Podcast. You've been listening to the Recruiting Live podcast by Recruiting Daily. Check out the latest industry podcasts, webinars, articles, and news at recruitingdaily.com.